and then, it, and then it'll turn on. See? Transitions are hard. That's what I was saying is transitions are hard. We're transitioning to a new month, and so there's little bumps in the road. We got the ring out. Is, this, is that okay? Okay, so let me read the scriptures that we're going to um, hear this morning. This is from the very end of 1 Peter chapter 5. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is other, likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, I want to invite children, rather, to uh, Children's Church. I don't know if we have any this morning. <laughs> um, okay, so then let's just go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, this, this uh, weekend we remember the founding of our nation. And, Lord, we're grateful for the tremendous freedoms that we have in our land. Lord, we thank you for... Um, the history that we have enjoyed, and Lord, we recognize that even in this great nation, we are still um, exiles, we're still pilgrims, that our true home lies in heaven, and that uh, we wait for that day when Christ comes and, and um, we are at home again. But Lord, we, we want to pray for our nation. Lord, you've, you've commanded us to care for those places that you've put us, and so Lord, we pray for America. Right now, we're going through a very tumultuous period. There's a lot of division and strife, name-calling across the aisles, distrust, um, anger. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would bring peace, restore peace to this nation. And, and Lord, I know the place where peace comes from, where unity is going to be found. And so, Lord, would you send us, as the greatest gift you possibly could, revival in this land. Would you send a renewed interest, not just in religion, but, Lord, in faith in you and trust in you and hope in the fact that Jesus is our righteousness? Would you rekindle that in this nation? Lord, you have been faithful to do it repeatedly throughout our history, and we know that you are fully capable of doing it again. So, Lord, have mercy on our nation as we celebrate our independence, as we celebrate our freedoms and our liberties. Lord, may we find true release and true freedom uh, in Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, we pray. And Lord, now as we wrap up First Peter, as we look to the end of this, this epistle that I found just wonderful so far, uh, Lord, would you be with us and to hear the message and to trust that what you're saying is true and right. Um, give us that hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, the part of the reason that I was praying for a nation and the division and stuff is because it's it's really happening. There is division, there is strife in our nation, and it's not just me. It's not just me that's noticing. Um, and it's not just recently. Uh, two years ago in The Atlantic, David Brooks wrote a article titled, America is Having a Moral Convulsion. And uh, he makes some really interesting points, so I want to read a couple of highlights from it. It's a much longer article. I just, there was a couple of things that I thought were helpful. He says, the American, our American history is driven by periodic moments of moral convulsion. The late Harvard political scientist Samuel P. Huntington noticed that these convulsions seem to hit the United States every 60 years or so. The revolutionary period of the 1760s and 70s, the Jacksonian uprising of the 1820s and 30s, 
the progressive era, which began in the 1890s, and the social protest movements of the 1960s and 70s. In 1981, Huntington predicted that the next great moral convulsion would hit America about the second or third decade of the 21st century. That is, right about now. And of course, he's correct. So um, it's not just David Brooks that's noticed this. There's been some other people who have been writing on it. Two books that I'm aware of, two writings that I'm aware of on this. Um, they're, they're noteworthy because not only did they diagnose the problem, but they're also offering um, solutions for it. One is uh, Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he wrote an article in The Atlantic, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Um, and he, he defines it and he clarifies it. It's a very interesting article. And then another gentleman, Yuval Levin, uh, he wrote two books that I think really address and, and show this to be true, but also offer hope. Is uh, One is called The Fractured Republic, and the other one is A Time to Build. Uh, so this is not just David Brooks. It's not just me. There's other people noticing it. There's been a bunch of other things. So let me continue with Brooks's article. He says, these moments share certain features. People feel disgusted by the state of society. Trust in institutions plummets. Moral indignation is widespread. Contempt for established power is intense. A highly moralistic generation appears on the scene. It uses new modes of communication to seize control of the national conversation. Groups formerly outside of power rise up and take over the system. These are moments of agitation and excitement, frenzy and accusation, mobilization and passion. He, said, he goes on, during the, most of the 20th century though, depression and wars, oh, through, I'm sorry, during most of the 20th century, through depressions and wars, Americans expressed high faith in their institutions. In 1964, for example, 77% of Americans said they trusted the federal government to do the right thing most or all of the time. 1964, 77% trusted the government. In the late 1960s and 70s, amid Vietnam and Watergate, trust in institutions collapsed. By 1994, only one in five Americans said they trusted the government to do the right thing. In 1997, 64% of Americans had a great or good deal of trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens. Today, only a third, 33% of Americans feel that way. Social trust is measured by the moral quality of a society, of whether the people and institutions in it are trustworthy, whether they keep their promises and work for a common good. When people in a church lose faith or trust in God, the church collapses. When people in society lose faith or trust in their institutions and in each other, the nation collapses. Now, I would argue that his, his point about the church is true. If you lose faith and trust in God, we're done. But I don't think that's for, that goes far enough. I think it's also true that if we lose faith and trust in each other, we're done. It's, it's not just a, a vertical aspect to it. It's a, it's a horizontal, too. So this idea of trust is immense. It's really important, and it's at a high premium these days. We don't trust anybody or anything. And so that's what Peter is actually going to mention. He does not use the word trust in this section. The word doesn't appear. Instead, what he does is he models it for us. He shows us what it means to trust. And so that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to take a look at what he has to say, and we're going to see that this is how we have hope in the dispersion, is with trust, trusting each other, 
trusting God. And so that's what he's going to call us to. That's where he sums up his book. So he begins in, in verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Um, there is some discussion about whether by Silvanus means Silvanus delivered the letter, you're receiving this letter because Silvanus is carrying it for you, or if it means that he wrote down what Peter dictated. It's called, you know, like a secretary. The technical term is amanuensis. So there's your $12 college-educated word of the day, amanuensis. But it's the person who wrote the letter down. Peter dictated it, he wrote it. So it could mean a stenographer. But, I mean, one of the significant things about this sermon is I'm not going to end by saying, by Mac OS Montgomery, a faithful OS as I regard it. I'm not going to say, by Microsoft Word, a faithful word processor as I regard it. Or by this sound system. That's not going to work because it wasn't working this morning. So that, that blows right out there. I, I'm not going to point to those things, but Peter does. Uh, now, I take it to be that Sylvanus is the one who wrote it, and there's technical reasons and everything. I'm not going to borrow with that. But I think it's the one that, that Sylvanus wrote it down. And so he's pointing out Sylvanus is trustworthy. He is a faithful brother. In other words, what he's saying is you can trust that he wrote down what I told him to write down. Now, if you want to go with the route that he's the person who delivered the letter, that works too. Because what it means is Sylvanus delivered the letter and he didn't mess with it. He brought you what was written down. It means that he's faithful. He came all the way to you. He didn't get halfway there and go, ah, oh, this is a nice vacation spot. I'll hit him next year. He was faithful to bring this message. So what is, what is Peter's point in bringing this? He, he wants the audience, which includes us, to trust Sylvanus. Sylvanus is faithful. What he has written down, what he's delivered to us, you can trust. You can trust this man. And that really gives us hope because what Peter's doing is he's showing us that there are trustworthy people. There are folks we can trust. As a matter of fact, we're trusting Peter, aren't we? We're saying Peter wrote this and, and he meant it. And these words are so important that I've spent, I, I forgot to count how long it was, all of these months going through this very slowly and carefully. Why? Because I trust Peter. Because I think he's got the spirit of God. I think he's giving us God's word. And so that's why Peter tells us you can trust Silvanus. He's a brother, a faithful brother. And he says, as I regard him. In other words, this is what I think of this man. He doesn't say, uh, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, and here's all of the things that he's done to prove himself faithful. He's saying, I regard him as faithful. You regard me as faithful. Trust him. That, that, that sounds kind of pedantic and, and just digging into stuff, but it's important because it's establishing the framework of trust here. So then Peter goes on. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I'll go to exhorting in a moment. I want to start with what he's declaring. What he's declaring is that this is true grace. Isn't that an interesting phrase, true grace? Is there a false grace? Could there be a fake grace? Yes, as a matter of fact, there can be from Jude. Um, verses 3 and 4, uh, Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for condemnation. Ungodly people. What do they do? They pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So you can take the idea of grace. If we say grace is our forgiveness, then they say, well, if I'm forgiven, then what I do doesn't really matter. And so I, Christ has forgiven me, and so if I sin, it's okay. It doesn't really matter much. Um, that's one way of doing that, is, just, is to look at the grace of God and turn it into something it's not. Another way is to look at the grace of God and say, well, God just wants me to be happy. And this one little sin's going to make me happy if I just tell this tale or just, you know, a little smooch. I didn't really do anything. I just get a little kiss here. You know, that's okay. That, that's that, because God wants me to be happy, right? Well, I think what we have to do is go back and say, wait a minute, time out. What is the true grace of God? Because if you, how you define grace is going to help you avoid these mistakes. If you say that grace is forgiveness from sins, then it opens up everything else. Well, if God just forgave my sins, then let us sin that grace may abound. That is perverse. It's upside down. I think a better way to define grace is it's God's love for us unearned. Now, if God fixes his love on us, if it's true grace, if it's God's love, it is at least forgiveness of sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's at least that. It's God's love for us is at least forgiveness of sin. But if it's God's love, it's not just forgiveness of sins. He looks at us and he says, I love this person so much, I'm going to pardon their sins. I'm going to take care of the sins that they've committed so that they can be close to me. And then I'm going to draw them close to me because I've fixed my love on them. And so the true grace of God goes beyond just forgiveness. It is God working in our lives, God working to make us into his people, setting us free from the things that we think will make us happy to the things that will ultimately, totally, eternally make us happy. So look at how Peter has defined true grace when he's gone through his epistle. Um, we'll just take a look at his, how he's used it. In 1.10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours see, searched and inquired carefully. So salvation that was to be ours is grace. We are saved by grace. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's grace is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus is God's grace. It's also the arrival of Jesus. When Jesus returns, that will be God's grace. That's not just forgiveness of sins. That is Jesus coming to reign over his people, to reign and to rule, the benevolent dictator, who will bring peace and joy and prosperity. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So being born again, not just I forgave your sins, but I bore this person again. They are made new. Their heart of stone has been removed, and they've been a heart of flesh. That is the grace of of life that God has given to us, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That is grace. That's more than just forgiveness of sin. That is now shaping your life into something that will lead you to ultimate joy. 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So these spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit seals into us, he pours into us these gifts, 
This is God's varied grace. It looks different in different people. They have different skills, different abilities. And his grace is also given to us because now we're together as his family. We use these for each other. And that's God's grace that we bless each other, we serve each other, we, we uh, instruct each other, we encourage each other, we pray for each other. All of that, that's God's grace. It's much more than just salvation. 5.5, five. likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is grace. As you, as you humble yourself before God, as you say, God, your definition of me is correct. Mine is probably skewed. And I'm going to bow to yours. Then God gives more grace. That's a grace that he gives us in, in growing in humility. And then 510. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering for a little while is according to the God of all grace. Suffering is according to the God of all grace. He wants you to be happy, and sometimes to get to that happy, to get to that place where you're with him, you must suffer. But what happens when you have suffered for a little while, for a period of time? Then he restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. This is God's grace in your life. So this is what Peter says. This is the true grace. This is what grace actually looks like. Grace is unearned. You're not going to be good enough to get it. If you're good enough to get God's grace, you're not getting grace. You're getting reward. That's not what it's about. God is going to pour his grace on you. So what Peter is saying here is he wants us to trust God's grace. He wants us to say, God's grace is going to be sufficient for me. I, I don't have to think that I've done enough good works that I can get into heaven. That number doesn't exist. Actually, it does. One person did it, and it was Jesus Christ. And so that's what he calls us for. That's the grace that he's calling us to. So this is the grace that he calls us to, and what's he tell us to do with it? Stand firm in it. Stand firm. Standing in the Bible is not the opposite of running. Standing is the opposite of falling. And so what he's saying here is, this is the grace that you've been given. Stand in it. Hold on to it. Don't depart from it. How can you know, how can you trust that those who have told you to give up on hoping in your own goodness and rely on something else, you can do nothing to secure? How do you know for yourself that you can trust in that? Right? So when the gospel is preached to you, the gospel is give up on your good works. They're not sufficient. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And so when you die and you go to heaven and you're asked why you should be there, you say, only because of Jesus. That's a huge ask. That's a giant thing because what I'm telling you to do, no plan B. Don't say, well, I have a good enough good works that if that doesn't work, then I'll get in because I'm good enough. That's not right. That, that won't do it. So why should you trust this message? Why should you put your hope in it? How can that happen? Well, because you honestly assessed your own efforts and you found them wanting. So this, all, every single one of these is tainted by something wrong because the promise of rest from struggling to be good sounded like such a wonderful invitation. I, I, I don't want to be good, and so it's really a struggle to be good. And somebody says, that's not what it's about. Trust in Jesus Christ. Suddenly, 
that sounds good. Because the yoke of sin had grown so heavy around your neck that you couldn't bear it any further. I'm done. I've tried it. It doesn't satisfy. It's because the story that God took the initiative and did all the work became beautiful to you. This truth became such a beautiful thing. You were attracted. You said, yes, I want that. I want that to be true. Why? How does all that work? Where does that come from? Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit within you. You are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work in your hearts. He's opened your mind and your heart to these truths. God took the initiative. This, even, even your faith in Christ is grace. Stand firm in it. So now the hard part. <laughs> Stand firm in it. That's the hard part. Younger folks may face the tide of peer pressure trying to pull them away from what they should trust. You believe what? How can that be? Your, your, your sexual ethics are primitive. They're so backwards and oppressive. How can you believe that? The tide of peer pressure pulling you. Middle-aged folks, you may begin to feel weary from facing that daily struggle of life that doesn't seem to be, uh, get better but only worse. You're just struggling, pushing through on a regular basis. And, it, and why am I hoping in this? Why don't I just indulge a little bit? And us older folks, well, we may feel like our bodies are beginning to betray us and we don't see any relief in sight. And why am I doing this? Why is this falling apart? Why is that falling apart? So the call here is stand firm in the true grace of God. It's all you have. What can you do about any of those other things? You've, you're doing everything you can about them. So please, stand firm. Trust that Peter's message to us is true. Trust that the Bible is an accurate representation of what God intended to tell us. And trust that the tremendous good news in it is tremendous good news. That's all we can do. That, that's all we can do is stand firm in it. So then in verse 13, he goes on and he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. So Babylon is, is in the early church was probably a pseudonym uh, for Rome. And, and think about why would they choose Babylon for that? Well, think about Babylon from a biblical perspective. Babylon was the city to which the, uh, Judah was taken away in, in uh, captivity. Nebuchadnezzar thundered down from the north and swept through these lands and, and took everything over. And so when you look to Babylon, you see this mighty pagan empire raging against you. And so that was probably what the, the early Christians were thinking when they looked to Rome. There's some theories that say that Babylon could also be a synonym for uh, Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the one that that's where Jesus was crucified. They turned against him. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it's Rome. I think I'll just kind of go with the Rome. But what does, what does Babylon represent? Not just the geographical borders of Rome in the first century. It represents opposition to God's people. It, it represents struggle. It represents captivity. It represents exile. But that's not the only picture of it. That's not the fullness of it. Daniel stood firm in the true grace of God, and he prospered in Babylon. While he was condemning people, he, he's telling Nebuchadnezzar to his face. He told Belshazzar, this is what's happening. He interpreted the writing. You're, you're done. And he prospered. He stood true in the faith, and he prospered. 
And then listen to Jer Jeremiah's admonition to us who are in exile. When we go into exile, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is, he's speaking of Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar carrying them away. They're, he's in Jerusalem waiting to go. He's, he's admonishing the people, just lay down your arms. This is God's doing. And when you get there, multiply. Bless the city to which you've been called. Well, this is the, this is the biblical picture of Babylon. And guess what? How did the book begin? To you elect exiles in the dispersion. We're in Babylon. We're scattered. We should be looking to the exiles from before, the admonition given to them, and we should seek the blessing of the city. We should be praying for them. We should increase and not decrease. So from Babylon, Peter writes, and he says, she who is at Babylon. Now that's probably speaking of the church. And the reason I say that is because it's she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen. So who's he writing to? The elect exiles. He, he then mentions the cities that they're in. And so he's doing the same thing here. He's mentioning Babylon or Rome, where they're also from. And he's, he's sending his greetings. So this is who she is, is. She is the church. She is also elect, just like the exiles are. And what she does is she sends you greetings. Across the divide, across the nations, people that you won't see are sending you greetings. You're not alone in this. The, the little group of people who are struggling through the oppression, the insults, the, the, um, the, uh, the uh, persecution, the, the daily struggle to remain faithful, you're not alone. Your elect sister says hi. And she's right there with you. She's struggling too. Others throughout Babylon send you greetings, brothers and sisters. And so does my son Mark. So um, a couple of weeks ago, the question was asked about Mark and what's the connection to Peter? Uh, because the idea is the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark under Peter's authority. And right here, Mark is his son, not physical, spiritual son, but they're together. This is John Mark who wrote that Gospel. And so the, consider the tenderness of this closing, the closing of this letter. Silvanus, he's a faithful brother. The woman at, in Babylon, the, the woman in exile in Babylon, she's elect. And, and Mark, oh, that's my son. Christianity is ultimately personal. It's not simply a set of doctrines that you have to memorize and agree with. It's at least that, but it's immensely personal. Silvanus is faithful. The church in Babylon is elect. Mark is my son. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's how we're supposed to behave. This is how we have hope in the exile. This is how we have to have trust for each other too. Look at how much more personal, it gets a lot more personal and I know many of you are gonna squirm. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Ah, you're invading my personal space. <laughs> Please don't kiss me. So what's going on here? Does it mean that we actually have to physically kiss each other 
every time we see each other, greet each other with a kiss of love. Well, I think it's cultural, culturally conditioned. So what we're doing is we're reminding each other in this greeting of the love that we have. That's the important part. So in the first century Middle East context, a kiss on the cheek was how you did it. In other cultures, it's a kiss on both cheeks. So you got to do two kisses. In some cultures, it's a hug. Um, in my culture, it's a sideways hug. <laughs> it's not, not wrapping around, just, hi, how you doing? Um, it can be just a warm greeting. But whatever it is, however you feel comfortable, what you don't have the option is you must greet the saints with love. Even the ones that you don't like sometimes. You have to greet them with love. Why do we have to do that? Well, it pulls you out of yourself. And then when you draw close to somebody, like you know the hug or the kiss or something, that's... I have to trust you that you're not going to put a knife in my belly at this point. It's so close and so personal. So, I mean, at the basis level, it's trust. But it reminds us of the connection we have in Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the love that we share for God. It reminds us of the true grace of God, that it's not just ours. So however we do it, whatever it looks like, greet one another with a kiss of love. Whatever that, however you feel comfortable with doing that. And so Peter wraps up his letter, his last line to us in this epistle. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In the midst of the exile, in the midst of the dispersion, as we're scattered to the four winds, as Babylon is raging, peace to you who are in Jesus Christ. That sounds very familiar to me. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Similar thought. How can we have peace in this? How can we have hope in this dispersion while we're waiting for the master to return and we go to our homeland? How do we have peace in that? You're in Christ. He's sealed it. He's done it all. This is the true grace of God. That's how you have peace. Peace with God and peace with each other is the true grace of God. It's all part of it. And it requires that we trust. It's really hard. Especially these days, there's so much false information, so much confusing reports, so many different opinions. It's hard to know who to trust. Start in the church. Even if somebody says something you don't agree with, trust that they're in Christ. And by not agree with, I don't mean Jesus isn't God. That's not in Christ. They have a different political opinion or economic outlook or something like that. That's what I'm talking about. But the guarantee is that we will all have peace who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you increase our trust? Lord, I think that's just what faith is, is trusting in the promises that you've given us, believing them to be true, and trusting by resting everything we have on them. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you fill us with that trust, trust in God, trust in God's promises. But also, Lord, as we serve each other, as we use the gifts that you've poured out on us, would you cause us to trust each other and increase in that? And, Lord, I pray that as we do these things, as, as the church as a whole, but us as, as an individual unit, Lord, as we do these things, we would become a community that is different, that there is something compelling and sweet in this community that divisions that divide on the outside disappear here and that people would see and want more. 
And Lord, may we be faithful to remind people it's not a social experiment. Peace to all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Come to the cross, come to Jesus, and find that peace. Lord, we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.